The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome back to a special edition of Francis Watch. I'm Matthew Gaskin, and as we announced last year, regular editions of Francis Watch were discontinued, though we did promise to record for certain big news events, and we've certainly hit one of those events with the July 16th, 2021 release of the Moto Proprio Tradiciones Custodes, the suppression of the traditional Latin mass within the Novus Ordo sect. With us to discuss the document and the accompanying letter to the bishops is Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, His Lordship, Bishop Donald Sanborn. Hello, my Lord. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us. Your Lordship, might we start with the very title of the motu proprio? Talk about Lodas, Lodas, Toujours Lodas, which roughly translated into English goes, the impertinence of it. Traditiones Custodes translates as the guardians of tradition. Yes, I think that there should be parentheses LOL after that every time <laughs> that is mentioned because the, the traditions that they have, of which they have been guardians are heresy, which goes back a long way in the church, uh, all sorts of aberrations, uh, uh, predations upon trusting uh, youths uh, and uh, 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 invalidating sacraments, various other traditions that go way back, which are all horrific. And they have guarded those very nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, atheism, I would say Bergoglio is a particular case in that. Uh, very, very many other horrid traditions. They have guarded that. I mean, they're, they're very good at that and maintaining all of that. Uh, but as far as Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. that's laugh out loud. <laughs> yeah, just laugh out loud. And, you know, it's, it is. But the first paragraph, according to Catholic theology, is absolutely true. He says, guardians of the tradition, the bishops in communion with the Bishop of Rome, constitute the visible principle and foundation of the unity of their particular churches, that is a totally Catholic statement. I can tell that Bergoglio did not write this because he's <laughs> incapable of it. So if somebody in his entourage wrote it, but that's a totally Catholic statement that yes, the hierarchy uh, constitutes the, the guardians of tradition. Yes, and the teachers of tradition and the magisterium is, is, is all part of, of tradition. They, they propose tradition just as they propose scripture. <laughs> in the form of the magisterium. That's totally true. So uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel and by means of the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, they govern the particular churches entrusted to them. That's absolutely true. But in application to our situation, it's as phony and fake as could be. And both of those citations are of Vatican II, which, of course, does have some Catholic things in it. It does, yes, 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 it does. Uh, 
so, uh, but there's, I mean, I could not object to that first paragraph. It's things that I say all the time. Uh, it's just that in application to what he's about to say, it is absurd to say something like that. To, to, to call these people, these ecclesiastical thugs, uh, the guardians of tradition. There's not a single Catholic tradition of which they are guardian. Name one. Hmm. Name a single one. Yeah, I can't think of one. Yeah, no, not, not a single one. So then follows some text in which Francis says that there was a survey of bishops, I guess in the true spirit of hypothesis, antithesis, synthesis, kind of all getting together and uh, discussing ideas. So they, they've gotten together and discussed it, and this has led to some conclusions, which is Article 1. The liturgical books promulgated by, I can't even say that word, Paul VI and John Paul II, um, they describe them as something else which I won't even give them the dignity of, in conformity with the decrees of Vatican Council II, are the unique expression of the lex orandi of the Roman rite. So I don't think I could say this better myself, my lord. Can you imagine that lex orandi is being discussed in a document authored by Francis? <laughs> Apparently authored by well, Francis. Well, it's the lex orandi of the Novus Ordo religion. Yes, it's mm -hmm. true. I mean, the Roman rite, I mean, forget about that. The, but it is the, the, of the Novus Ordo religion, it's the lex orandi, he has left out the, the second part of that, which is the lex credendi. That means the, there is a correspondence between the lex orandi, or the law of praying, and the lex credendi, which is the law of believing, that those two things must be absolutely matched and in conformity one with the other. As a matter of fact, Pius XII said that the correct formulation of that is that the Lex orandi should establish the lex credendi. In other words, that the, the, the law of believing actually is, is dictated by and taught by the law of praying. See, so that, that, that's, the, the, that's how Pius XII says it in Mediator Dei, which was his encyclical on the, uh, he was very clear about that. Mm -hmm. The, uh, so that the you learn your faith essentially from the, the from the mass. You go to the mass and just the liturgy, the sacred liturgy itself, its gestures and words, everything about it should be telling you something. Even if you could not read, if you could not read a missal, even if you didn't understand what the sermon was about, there is something about the sacred liturgy which teaches you Catholic doctrine. All of the uh, attention and adoration of Applied to the Holy Eucharist, for example. I mean, the, the incense, the genuflections, the bells, all of those things come together. Uh, the, um, the role of the priest uh, is, is also very evident in it. And so, the, so that, that's the lex orandi of, of the true church. The lex orandi of the Novus Ordo is definitely, <laughs> is, is, I mean, that is, I mean, is, I have no argument with that. That the, the, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, yeah, he's right about that in the sense that, see, what he's doing is taking away in that this absurd uh, assertion of Ratzinger that one is the ordinary right and the other is the extraordinary right. Everyone knew that that was an absurdity back in 2007 when he said it. These two rights conflict one with another. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. And Ratzinger was saying something 
I must say, stupid. I mean, no one took that seriously. No. That, you know, these two rights, one is ordinary and they, they, they complement each other and all. I mean, just who, who's kidding whom here? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, it's an absurdity to say that. And so he's killing that off. He's saying the, the traditional right is not a legal right of, of the Roman right. It, it is, uh, he's going to essentially say, without coming out and, and uh, you know, being so explicit, he's going to say it's a tolerated evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just some sort of uh, way of saying mass that, uh, that we occasionally permit for some, some good reason or you know, some concession, you might say. Uh, so that's a significant thing. It's a unique lexorandi. So he, he's eliminating the traditional masses having any right in the R-I-G-H-T, any, any right to exist, any, any legal status. Mm-hmm. It's very important. In Article 2, it says, it belongs to the diocesan bishop as moderator, promoter, and guardian of the whole liturgical life of the particular church entrusted to him to regulate the liturgical celebrations of his diocese. Therefore... It is his exclusive competence to authorize the use of the 1962 Roman Missal in his diocese according to the guidelines of the Apostolic See. Well, the first sentence is true in the sense that the diocesan bishop is the ultimate priest in the diocese, and he is anybody who helps him, namely his priests, are dependent upon him. And yes, he he authorizes them to say mass. Uh, the he cannot. In, in traditional law, uh, alter the rite of the mass or anything like that, but he can uh, determine where mass will be said and on uh, what altars and what, even the vestments and all of, all of the things that pertain to the celebration of the mass are his domain, you know? And so that's true, you know, essentially true. Uh, uh, that, that, I mean, I couldn't really argue with that first statement. Now to regulate the liturgical celebrations in his diocese, that's true. Therefore, it is in his exclusive competence to authorize the use of the 1962 Roman Missal in his diocese according to the guidelines of the Holy See, or the Apostolic See. So here again, uh, ultimately the Apostolic See has the right to determine the liturgical rites of the Catholic Church. And yes, the bishop, uh, it can determine in his own diocese, uh, you know, uh, where where the if there's any divergence in right, for example, Eastern rites, or as I'm talking about the traditional mm-hmm. law of the church. Uh, yes, he has the right to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, there's there's um, there's he has already taken away the legal status in the first article or the first statement there legal status of the 1962 Missal. Now he's saying that it's up to the bishop to decide if he wants to tolerate it or not and where it will be and how often, etc. But there is to be a test of the, the conformity with the Novus Ordo sect. In Article 3, the bishop of the diocese, in which until now there exists one or more groups that celebrate according to the Missal antecedent to the reform of 1970, paragraph 1, is to determine that these groups do not deny the validity and the legitimacy of the liturgical reform dictated by Vatican II and the Magisterium of the Supreme Pontiffs. 
Yes, again, if you're assuming that Vatican II and the magisterium of Vatican II is Catholic, then of course that would be true. But you mm -hmm. see there's an underlying principle in this whole thing, and that is Vatican II. Mm -hmm. And and the, the traditional mass is beaming the message that Vatican II is false, and illegitimate, and <laughs> invalid. It just by it's 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 you know you, the priest doesn't have to say anything. There is such a difference between the new mass and the traditional mass that it is teaching that just in its gesture and it, everything about it. Mm -hmm. It is uh, it's like a, a the 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 uh, fragrance of a rose coming from a rose. Mm -hmm. You don't <laughs> it doesn't have to convince you of anything. <laughs> it is. It is there, and you know you can't even describe it, but it's there, and it's unmistakable, uh, as unmistakable as the the odors of a pile of cow manure is unmistakable, and I, you know what I'm referring to there, uh -huh. and that is the new mass. Mm -hmm. you see, so that has an unmistakable message as well, uh, one of humanism, one of denial of the real presence of the Christ, the denial of the dignity of the priesthood. Uh, denial of, of so many other Catholic doctrines of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, etc. The, the, they are two things that, that battle. And so this is, yes, you know, I, assuming that, that the, the new Mass is the Roman Rite, of course, people would have to say we agree with its legitimacy and its validity. I wonder how they will uh, check the conformity of these people uh, to Vatican... Vatican too, and perhaps they'll have struggle sessions, but I, I just don't think that there are enough people in the Nova Soto Church now to make a struggle session effective. Well, he has assigned a Gestapo agent. I don't know if you saw that. In no, his, I didn't. Yes. I mean, he wouldn't call it that, but there's a priest assigned by the bishop to oversee these various groups who are saying the Mass to make sure that they are in you know, so many words, he says that, you know, that make sure that there's no offense to the unity of the church, etc. So, so that's fine, but the sodalitium was oppressive and terrible and yeah, awful. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they are using all of the instruments of the Catholic Church in the past to enforce the, the, the new religion and to suppress the old. All of the force and objectivity of the Catholic Church in the past in the repression of heresy is now being used against Catholics, people who... In, to a greater or lesser extent, adhere to the Catholic faith. The bishop also is to designate one or more locations, one or more locations where the faithful adherents of these groups may gather for the Eucharistic celebration, not, however, in the parochial churches and without the erection of new personal parishes. Yes, that's very, very important. That means they're taking the mass out of parish churches. Right now, it is in parish churches, and in some cases, it's in personal parishes. That means, see, parishes are ordinarily organized by territory, uh, whereas a personal parish simply means that you belong to that parish if you regularly go there. See, so in certain cases, some dioceses have established these personal parishes for the traditional Latin Mass. So he says, no new personal parishes. And you can't have the traditional mass in a parish church. Uh, that is something new. Where are you going to have the traditional mass then? Now, 
in Europe, you know, there's especially continental Europe, there's a lot of, um, you know, private chapels in the mountains and here, there, and the other place you get, you see them on the streets and all these little chapels. And so it might be a little easier. That might be a little easier in Europe. In this country, those are practically non-existent. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's too many of them in England either. I mean, they, they, I, I know if I'm not yeah, you know, it's, it's not a, a common thing. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know where, I mean, that virtually excludes it from celebration in the United States, mm -hmm. you know, apart from those places that are serviced by the fraternity of St. Peter and these other things that, that have already been established. But as far as a sumorum pontificum mass, in other words, a mass organized by say a, a diocesan priest, uh, that you know has the permission of the bishop to function you know, like maybe five o'clock in the afternoon on Sundays or something like that, which was typical. Uh, that that's that's eliminated now. You can't. They, it won't be seen in parishes, so it's exiling it to extreme privacy. You might say, in, in almost all cases. Furthermore, the bishop is to establish at these designated locations the days on which the Eucharistic celebrations are permitted using the Roman Missal promulgated by. Yes. John the 23rd in 1962. In these celebrations, the readings are proclaimed in the vernacular language using translations of the sacred scripture approved for liturgical use by the respective Episcopal conferences. So you, if the bishop so decides, you, you, if you're a Nova Sorda conservative and you, you have a leaning towards that kind of thing, you may not even be able to go to your traditional mass on Sundays because the bishop might say no. Yes, uh, that's correct. That uh, he can say it could be on Wednesday night, something like the Protestants have it, or have their services, or really any time, Saturday mornings, or um, uh, the the also in in uh, churches that are in horrible neighborhoods where you might be mugged, uh, and uh, so you know he might relegate it to uh, extinction that way. Was where you cannot have a parish life with this. This is an event that you might go to, but he's he's eliminating parishes, uh, parish life in, with the traditional mass, where you can go every Sunday to to. Uh, I mean, at least he's giving all of the possibility of doing that uh, to the bishop. It was just to make it a, a sort of special event, a wedding or a funeral or a, some a once a month event. Mm -hmm. uh, so he is destroying this rising interest in the traditional mass as an alternative Catholicism for the Novus Ordo. And that's, that's what that's going to kill off. And that's what he intends to kill off mm -hmm. in doing that. So this is completely up to the bishop. And uh, a number of bishops have already totally eliminated the traditional mass from their diocese. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bishop of Melbourne did that in Australia. Uh, and uh, just it's gone. Uh, and um, uh, I was told by a, a priest in Germany that there's pressure on his bishop from clergy in his diocese to completely uh, eliminate it. This is a priest that says uh, the traditional mask exclusively. Uh, but he said, I've drawn a line. I'm not, that's it. You know? <laughs> oh, he's, he's got trouble now. Yes. So if he, if the bishop, uh, you know, comes down upon him, but he, he's, he's not, he, he just won't say the new mass. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but uh, you're seeing a, a good deal of this. I mean, here, uh, you're, some bishops are saying, well, for now, everything's the same, all the permissions are, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. 
so they might want to think about it a little bit, and, and you might see some restrictions. It really, it's all in the hands of the bishops now, totally. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, in, in, in alignment with collegiality, I guess. Yeah. In addition, the bishop is to appoint a priest who, as delegate of the bishop, is entrusted with these celebrations and with the pastoral care of these groups of the faithful. There you go. This priest should be suited for this responsibility, skilled in the use of the Missale Romanum, antecedent to the reform of 1970, possess a knowledge of the Latin language sufficient for a thorough comprehension of the rubrics and liturgical texts, and be animated by a lively pastoral charity and by a sense of ecclesial communion. This priest should have at heart not only the correct celebration of the liturgy, but also the pastoral and spiritual care of the faithful. Now, how many Novus Ordo priests have a skilled use of Latin sufficient for thorough comprehension? They don't. They don't. No, they don't teach Latin in the seminaries anymore. And if they do know Latin, they've taught it to themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, no, that, that's, you know, that's like looking for the unicorn in the forest. Uh, and also uh, a, a familiarity with the... Um, with the traditional mass. And these are obviously not going to be taken from priests who are uh, celebrating exclusively or almost exclusively the traditional mass. These are going to be handpicked by the bishop to make sure that nobody is, you see, they, they must also take, take spiritual, uh, take care of the faithful pastorally and spiritually. That means they're essentially the pastors they are the ones that are instructing the, the faithful. They, they are sort of vicars of the bishop. Mm -hmm. uh, so this will be to keep the whole thing in union with the Novus Ordo, with all of the proper attitudes towards the Novus Ordo, so that the rigid Latin mass priests will not be able to form their, their lay people. You see, so it is to, uh, it's effectively going to, destroy the motive of going to the traditional mass. The people, the reason why people go to the traditional mass is not for the music or the incense. They go because they hate the new mass. And in hating the new mass, they are implicitly hating Vatican II. Mm -hmm. And it is two religions. It's in, like the tale of two cities is the tale of two religions. This is two religions existing in the same ecclesiastical structure. And that's what this is addressing underneath all of this. And the articles five and six are together because the air comes real quicker. The bishop is to proceed suitably to verify that the parishes canonically erected for the benefit of these faithful are effective for their spiritual growth and to determine whether or not to retain them. And furthermore, the bishop is to take care not to authorize the establishment of new groups. Yes, so uh, the, the Gestapo priest is... Uh, <laughs> If he senses that there is an anti-Vatican II feeling, or if the if there's not enough people, and who decides that, uh, then uh, maybe they'll be suppressed. See whether or not to retain them. For you, the Latin mass is over. Yes, yes. <laughs> or, or that you know, there's not enough spirit of Vatican II here, or I sense that there is a lack of ecclesial unity here, uh, and I have to re report to the bishop that I think that this should be shut down. 
no, no, no opportunity for dialogue yeah. here? No, there's no opportunity for that. It's only for, you know, people who are woke <laughs> and, you know, ecclesiastically woke. No, this is all suppression that makes the suppression of modernism by Pius X look like a picnic. Uh, and take care not to authorize the establishment of new groups. That means that, see, under Sumorum Pontificum, if you could get a group of people together, a sufficient number, and go to the bishop, he was obliged. He could not refuse you. That was Sumorum Pontificum, that it came from Rome, see, and that they had a right to this. And if they could, you know, obtain a priest, and they, they had a right to it. Well, this is no new groups. He's essentially extinguishing it very gradually. This, this is going to put out the candle very, very gradually. Mm -hmm. It's going to make it so difficult. And it gives the bishops so much leeway in determining the, the, where the mass shall be, how often it will be, whether these people ought to have it or not. It is hanging by a shoestring, a, a, a bare thread. It has no legal status, all of its legal... Uh, status as a Roman right has been removed. It's just some sort of tolerated evil now. So if you're a Catholic in uh, so-called Cardinal Burke's parish or so-called Archbishop Schneider's parish, you might be okay. You might be all right. Right. But if, you're, if your bishop is not uh, well disposed towards the Latin Mass, then... You're, you're toast. You better live for some hours. Yes. You're going to end up in the Novus Ordo. In Article 4, priests ordained after the publication of the present motu, motu proprio who wish to celebrate using the Missale Romanum of 1962 should submit a formal request to the diocesan bishop who shall consult the apostolic see before granting this authorization. Yes, now I, we know from the priest that recently joined us, uh, the Novus Ordo priest who recently joined us, that most of the seminarians in the seminaries now are interested in, in celebrating the traditional mass. The, the, there's relatively few convinced modernists. They all are of traditional leaning, let's say, and what, they are what he calls Ratzinger conservatives. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, they're not ready to sign up in, in most Holy Trinity Seminary, but nonetheless, they are, they are heavily leaning toward tradition and they love the traditional mass. And they, uh, uh, he says the majority of them are that way, you know. The, um, so this is going to affect quite a few of them. He, he uh, told me about um, someone he knew where uh, he was very advanced. I think he was about to be ordained a deacon. And he went to the bishop and said, in conscience, I cannot celebrate the new mass. And the bishop said, well, in conscience, I can't ordain you. See, so again, this clash. You see, it, it, uh -huh. this is this is a this is a couple in need of a divorce. The new religion and the old religion are occupying in this situation that was created by Sumorum Pontificum and these gradual uh, permissions for the traditional mass. This is two people that hate each other. Uh -huh. that are living in the same house and uh -huh. one needs to get out. <laughs> it's in need of a divorce. And this is the, the bill of divorce essentially. And, and it, it's, it's, it's going to gradually extinguish it. 
and that's what Cardinal Mueller said, Novus Ordo Cardinal Mueller, recently had a comment on this. He said, this, this is, you can see the intention of this is the gradual extinction of the, of the traditional mass. Mm -hmm. And he's by no means, I mean, he's, he's seen as a conservative, but he isn't. So Article 5. Priests who already celebrate according to the Missale Romano of 1962 should request from the diocesan bishop the authorization to continue to enjoy the faculty. So just because you're doing it now, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you can carry on doing it. Correct. You, gotta, you, gotta ask you have to get approved again. And that means that, you know, the next day he could say no. You see, it's yeah. not some sort of legal right or... It's just uh, it's at, at the, the pleasure of the bishop. Mm -hmm. And the bishop could change, a new bishop could come in, and he could take it away from you. Article 6. Institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life erected by the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei fall under the competence of the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies for Apostolic Life. So what, what does that article mean? It means see, that Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei was set up by John Paul II, to regulate the fraternity of St. Peter and other, uh, eventually other congregations like the Institute of Christ the King that, that were special. And it was headed up by clergy who were sympathetic to what they were doing. This puts it under the general tent, you might say, of all religious life and uh, in, in the Novus Ordo religion. The, the little that's left of it, all right? <laughs> so the, yeah. the, you know, we're running out of papers at this the, point. The, you know, the, the geriatric uh, you know, institutions. Uh, the, uh, so, so that means they have no uh, like special advocate in Rome or something that protects them or uh, they are just one of the gang now mm -hmm. as far as uh, it's like the Jesuits or the Dominicans or something like that. So, so they, could, they should really... You know, that bell tolling in the distance, that, that's for them. Yes, it, it means that uh, they, they, they will come under general laws and general, the general policies. They won't have a, a special place you know, mm. in, in the government of, of the Novus Ordo religion. The Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments and the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life for matters of their particular competence exercise the authority of the Holy See with respect to the observance of these provisions. It's basically saying the same thing. Yes, it's the same thing. It's, it's suppressing the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei. See, Ecclesia Dei was the title of John Paul II's document uh, instituting the Fraternity of St. Peter in 1988 when they broke from Archbishop Lefebvre because of the consecration of bishops. Mm -hmm. So that's why it has that term Ecclesia Dei. So that was that idea that you're going to have a type of umbrella over you to protect you from the, the general storm of the Novus Ordo. So they're taking the umbrella away. Taking that away. They're just one of the gang now. Who could possibly have predicted that, that that would, that would happen eventually? Uh, it, it was very predictable. <laughs> because, the, again, this is a, a tale of two... I know you bring some guests. <laughs> But, you know, it, it's, it's nasty to say, I told you so. But the SSPX could say that to Fraternity of St. Peter now. We told you so. Mm -hmm. You trusted these, these ecclesiastical thugs, the, these people who have in mind to destroy the Catholic religion. You trusted them. And now here's where you are. You are 
uh, completely stripped of all of the protections that they promised you. It's taken 33 years. Yes, it's happened. Yes, it's happened. Yes. You know, so uh, they, uh, and uh, I mean, it's not, some of them might say, well, this too shall pass. It's like a passing storm. We'll wait for the next Pope. But uh, uh, Bergoglio has appointed 57% of the cardinals who will partake in the next conclave. And according to reports, he's not in the best of health right now, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. He's half bowel-less. Right. I wonder if knowing that he was keen to rush this document out. But... Well, it's been in the works for, I think, 18 months. Okay. I think, uh, uh, so it's nothing new in that sense. Um, the, uh, they sent out a questionnaire, as we know, to the bishops to find out what they thought about it. And you can tell from this what they did think about it. They're all mm -hmm. anti-traditional mass for the most part. There's probably a few that are you know, not so, but uh, for the most part, they're, uh, they don't want it. They, uh, and in a certain sense, I don't blame them. I mean, if the new religion is the Catholic religion, then why have this thing around? Mm -hmm. you know? And, and it, it's again, two opposing religions in the same ecclesiastical house and they don't belong together, they hate each other. And this is just a manifestation of that, that's all it is. So article eight, previous norms, instructions, permissions, and customs that do not conform to the provisions of the present motu proprio are abrogated. Yes, that's interesting because there were a number of permissions. One of them is the permission to fraternity of St. Peter and I think Christ the King, I'm not too sure, to use the pre-1955 Holy, Holy Week rite, which we use because they did their liturgical research and found out that that was the product of the Freemason Bonini and that, you know, despite the fact that Pius XII authorized it, uh, nonetheless, is a precursor of the reform of 1970. Paul VI said that in mm -hmm. his document, Missale Romanum, which is part of the uh, new missal. He said that the, this, this was begun in 1955 with the, you know, those liturgical reforms. So that looks as though that has been rescinded. Uh, John Paul II said you can use any liturgical rite from the past. And so I was told that Christ the King, the Griciliano, that, that they were using the Sarum rite. Uh, Pius V, if you recall, had suppressed the Sarum rite, not because there was anything wrong with it. It just, as a precaution, he said, anything that's not 200 years old has to be suppressed. I don't know of any problem in the Sarum rite. It's the English you know, Sal Salzburg. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, so they were using the Sarum rite. And the other, the Mozarabic rite was suppressed in Spain. And uh, I don't know, probably some others, I'm not too sure, but there were a lot of uh, uh, rites that, that were around that had to be suppressed as a, as a precaution. Uh, and so I think that's rescinded. You know, there, there may be other permissions that we just don't know about, and that's all rescinded and abrogated. So, so there's... Uh just want to read the end of the uh, the end of the covering letter here, and then there's, there are two questions which people may well have. He says, "Everything that I have declared in the apostolic letter in the form of motu proprio, I ordered to be observed in all its parts. Anything else to the contrary, notwithstanding, even if worthy of particular mention, 
and I established that it be promulgated by way of publication in L'Osservatore Romano, entering immediately in force, and subsequently that it be published in the official commentary of the Holy See, the Acta Apostolice Sedis. Now, some people have argued that since Quo Primum is a bull, and this is only a motu proprio, that this document cannot annul Quo Primum. Uh, that's the document of uh, St. Pius V. But it is published in the Acta, so which has more authority? Can a motu proprio annul a bull? And regardless of a promulgating document, doesn't publishing in the Acta give it the teeth it needs anyway? The form of law, meaning the title given to the document, has absolutely nothing to do with the force of the law. Absolutely nothing. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, uh, the Pope can do whatever he wants. Okay. That's principle one. He is not bound to law. He's, not, he's above canon law. He's, he can do whatever he wants. Uh, this was, came up with uh, people who were arguing quo primum against Paul VI Mass, that he, because he used that, you see, even if worthy of particular mention, there's something in canon law that says if, some, if there's a custom more than 100 years old or whatever, 50 years old, I can't remember what it is, that it has to be mentioned particularly in order to be suppressed. That's in the old canon law. Mm -hmm. So Paul VI said exactly that, worthy of, of particular mention. Oh, oh, that means, you know, he, he, he suppressed Col Primum invalidly, therefore it's still in effect. Uh, the, that's just not true. He can say that. He's the Pope. He, uh, he even said it. If he had left it out totally, he might have an argument, a legal argument. But he says, even if worthy of particular mention, he's the Pope. Mm -hmm. He's the vicar of Christ. Mm -hmm. I mean, not, not that we think that, but I mean, in principle, he's the vicar of Christ in the sense that, that we're talking about him sort of fictionally as, as the vicar of Christ. Mm -hmm. He can do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. and, and he could change canon law. He could throw canon law in the garbage if he wants mm -hmm. and just make his own canon law. He is the supreme monarch of the Catholic Church. And to cite law against him is is absurd, it's Jansenist, it, it is, it is, it's just absurd. He can annul it with, with even a voice, just a word, he can annul it. I annul that law. You see, that, that's his power. And so it's, it's just an absurdity to try to, to put up quo premium against this. I remember the, the uh, John Paul II, uh, Wojtyla, so-called canonization, I asked you a similar question and you said, He's the Pope. He can canonize whoever he wants. He can get up in the morning and say, I'm going to canonize somebody, and they're canonized. And he can mm -hmm. do it in whatever form he wants. Well. Yes, it's true. It's absolutely true. In that sense, there is no limit on his power. The only limitation upon the power of the Pope is the faith itself. That's the only way in which he is tempered. Which is what we question. <laughs> you know, that he must promulgate things in, in accordance with the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. sacred scripture and tradition and magisterium, previous magisterium, that he can, those are the, the walls in which he must function. But as far as the general government of the church, what pertains to canon law, what pertains to the sacred liturgy, he can alter that as he pleases. So that is effectively the document. Yes. Uh, given at Rome, it's John Lateran on the 16th of July. Uh, 
this is the covering letter. Uh, it starts the same way. Given at Rome at St. John Lateran, 16th of July, the liturgical memorial of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And the comment is, uh, the 16th of July is also the International Day of the Snake. <laughs> Which one do you think he's referencing? Uh, um, right, so he starts off the covering letter. Most people understand the motives that prompted John Paul II and Benedict XVI to allow the use of the Roman Missal promulgated by St. Pius V and edited by St. John XXIII, oh, sorry, I said it, John XXIII in 1962 for the Eucharistic sacrifice. The faculty granted by the indult of the Congregation for Divine Worship in 1984 and confirmed by John Paul II in the Moti Proprio was above all motivated by the desire to foster the healing of the schism with the movement of Monsignor Lefebvre with the ecclesial intention of restoring the unity of the church. The bishops were thus asked to accept with generosity the just aspirations of the faithful who requested the use of that missile. Is this correct, my lord? Uh, yes, that's correct. The, uh, that whole thing, the uh, Ecclesia Dei and the Fraternity of St. Peter was set up uh, because Fraternity of St. Peter was saying, we disagree with the consecrations that were against the law. We disagree with the idea of recognize and resist, that if you're going to recognize the Roman pontiff, you have to function under his authority, which is a Catholic attitude. See, I mean, I would disagree with what they did, but I would say they are consistent with a Catholic principle there. Uh, and so they, uh, so John Paul II set that up and quite a few of their priests went over to Fraternity of St. Peter. Uh, and they're still functioning and they're flourishing, I think. So, yeah, that, that's, that's correct. Many in the church came to regard this faculty as an opportunity to adopt freely the Roman Missal promulgated by St. Pius V and use it in a manner parallel to the Roman Missal promulgated by Paul VI. In order to regulate this situation at the distance of many years, Benedict XVI intervened to address this state of affairs in the church. Many priests and communities had used with gratitude the possibility offered by the Moti Proprio of John Paul II. Underscoring that this development was not foreseeable in 1988, the Moti Proprio Simon Pontificum of 2007 intended to introduce, quote, a clearer juridical regulation, unquote, in this area. In order to allow access to those, including young people who, when they discover this liturgical form, feel attracted to it and find in it a form particularly suited to them to encounter the mystery of the Most Holy Eucharist, Benedict XVI declared the Missal promulgated by St. Pius V and newly edited by John XXIII as an extraordinary expression of the same Lex Orandi, which we discussed earlier, granting a more ample possibility for the use of the 1962 Missal. Yes, the uh, Jumpal too had given some permissions, I remember in the 1980s, uh, for the traditional Mass. Uh, even prior to uh, the uh, Fraternity of St. Peter in 1988. And that became more and more popular, uh, especially among young people. The, uh, this, this Novus Ordo priest uh, says that the, it's the young people that are mostly interested in the traditional mass. It's not the older crowd. And so he, uh, Benedict XVI, strengthened that. Now, Benedict XVI was, despite the fact that he's a raving modernist, had excellent taste. 
he was he had, he had a taste for everything that was elegant, and I think he was in that sense attracted to the traditional mass as a. Uh, beautiful, elegant thing, just as he wore the beautiful vestments and the mitres and all of those things. He, he brought back to to the Vatican things that were beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, he loves Mozart, and he, that's his favorite composer. And Mozart is a very classical and ordered, elegant type of, uh, of composer. I mean, anybody that my favorite composer is Mozart too. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> so the, the, his whole culture is Southern German Baroque uh, beauty. And so I think he was, he was attracted in that way to the traditional mass, but he lived in this absurd world that these were two expressions of the same faith. It's an absurd world. And so he, he made this concession and gave it, surprisingly, an awful lot of teeth in principle, in theory, that, that people had the right to it from Rome and that the bishop had to concede it if, if there were enough people and he could find a priest to say it. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was powerful. You know? And uh, so he tied the hands of the bishops in theory. Now, in practice, the bishops still uh, ran the show with regard to the traditional mass. I mean, they, they they didn't pay attention to that. They just determined where it would be said, et cetera. But the, the uh, nonetheless, in theory, it was very powerful and set the traditional mass in a way on its feet in the Novus Ordo religion mm-hmm. uh, and gave it prominence and, and uh, and then you had you know other other groups uh, in France and other places that got these permissions. And so it, it, there's a there's a a life of the traditional liturgy, and with it a life of traditional theology mm-hmm. that goes closely with it in the Novus Ordo tent, right? And that's what Bergoglio hates. Right? <laughs> he hates it with a passion. Don't forget when he was newly elected, he was constantly talking about rigid people and mm-hmm. con- you know, absolutely cruel uh, 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 statements concerning people who were attached to traditions and rosaries. Yeah. And Near Pelagian rosary councils. Yes. <laughs> and just, just uh, I mean, he has it on the brain. Yeah. He hates the traditional faith. He hates it with a passion. And this presence of this thing with growing interest, what not only among young lay people, but among young clergy, mm-hmm. he would sooner see, because the Novus Ordo is dying, he would sooner see the whole Novus Ordo just come down to nothing and collapse like, a, like an old building, like a building in ruins like the Roman Forum. He would sooner see that happen than to see the, the traditional mass and the traditional religion that goes with it overcome the structures that the Novus Ordo is, is presently occupying. So saying Harrods on Knightsbridge in London is the same expression of the same architecture as your local Walmart. Yeah. I mean, they're both stores. You can buy yeah. stuff there. Yes, yes. What, what's the difference? Yes. It's, uh, it's two different worlds, two different religions. Everything about it is different. And both... Both rites are educational. In other words, they, they, they form their people. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is the natural result. It's something like the, the sun giving light and warmth. 
to try to uh, say to the traditional people and traditional mass, so the traditional mass, you know, you have to agree with Vatican II in order to have this, would be something like standing facing east and watching the sunrise and screaming at the sun, don't you dare expel the darkness of the night. <laughs> this is as absurd as that. Yeah. If the sun rises, it's going to be day. Yeah. And if the traditional mass is there, there's going to be traditional Catholic doctrine. Mm -hmm. And it's going to foster that and, and make it grow in people's souls. Mm -hmm. It's inevitable. It's as inevitable as the sun rising. I remember I was walking around uh, the Brompton Oratory with Father McKenna mm -hmm. when he visited London. I think it was a Saturday morning, but I'm sure it was a Saturday morning. And they were having a, a, a Latin mass at one of the side chapels in the Brompton Oratory. And I was amazed to see there are actually plenty of people there. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, uh, I think one of the Novus Ordo priests in the oratory figured out who Father McKenna, not, not figure out, they didn't know who he was exactly, but they kind of, mm. they had, kind yeah. of had an idea. And it watched us, scowled at us all the way around and then told us that we couldn't take photos and we had to leave, which has never been a problem for me before. But um, mm. yeah, it was, it was surprising that on a Saturday morning, there were people actually attending this mm -hmm. mass. Mm -hmm. um, so it obviously had an effect on people. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. If you go near the fire, you're going to get warm. So we continue. In making their decision, they were confident that such a provision would not place in doubt one of the key measures of Vatican II or minimize in this way its authority. The motu proprio recognized that in its own right, the missal promulgated by Paul VI is the ordinary expression of the Lexorandi of the Catholic Church of the Latin Rite. The recognition of the missal promulgated by St. Pius V as an extraordinary expression of the same legs around you, which as we said is Left out loud. Yeah. <laughs> Did not in any way underrate the liturgical reform, but was decreed with a desire to acknowledge the insistent prayers of these faithful, allowing them to celebrate the sacrifice of the mass according to the editio typica of the Roman Missal promulgated by John the 23rd in 1962 and never abrogated as the extraordinary form of the liturgy of the church. It comforted Benedict XVI in his discernment that many desired to find the form of the sacred liturgy dear to them, clearly accepted the binding character of Vatican II and were faithful to the Pope and to the bishops. What is more, he declared to be unfounded the fear of division in parish communities because, quote, the two forms of the use of the Roman rite would enrich one another, unquote. Laugh out loud. Thus... <laughs> He invited the bishops to set aside their doubts and fears and to welcome the norms, quote, attentive that everything would proceed in peace and serenity, unquote, with the promise that, quote, it would be possible to find resolutions, unquote, in the event that, quote, serious difficulties came to light, unquote, in the implementation of the norms once the motu proprio came into effect. Your comment. Well, this is completely naive, again, that the, the two rights could co coexist uh, without any theological conflict. 
they are two rites of two different religions. And the theological conflict is in the two different religions. Vatican II produced a reformed Catholicism, which is the term that modernists use for used in the turn, turn of the last century under Pius X, reformed Catholicism, uh, a completely transformed religion that uh, only had certain you know, historical roots in Catholicism. Uh, and, and then the traditional right is the expression of the traditional faith, pre-Vatican to faith. Those two things cannot be together. And, and I think that, you know, I, I welcome this act of Bergoglio. For that reason, it will wake up to all of those who are trying to eke out this ridiculous cohabitation mm -hmm. that it's impossible that they need to break from Vatican II. They need to break from the Novus Ordo. They need to denounce the Novus Ordo as a fake religion and, and that it is uh, something that has nothing to do with Catholicism. I hope that some of them come to that conclusion from this. For all of the naivety in that paragraph, Ratzinger is not a stupid man. But he, his mind, obviously the two rights can, can coexist in his intellect. So his mind must be so relativist that he, he just can't distinguish between the two. He, he has no particular preference one for the other. They're, they're co-equal in his mind. Is that, is that true to say or not? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to get into someone's mind. I, I just, uh, at the time I wrote this uh, in 2007, that... I thought that he was concerned about the aging and declining problem of the Novus Ordo, that it was losing priests, it was, you know, had, had major crises, uh, demographic crises, mm -hmm. and that he wanted to hitch the young horses of the, of the traditional movement to the decrepit carriage of the Novus Ordo, and it was that, the, that somehow the Novus Ordo would benefit from this uh, spontaneous, youthful interest. Notice that he mentions that mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, in, in the, the traditional mass. I, I, I interpreted it that way. I think there was also that idea of the beauty of it, you know, that, mm -hmm. that he was interested in it, that it should not be something that perishes from the face of the earth. Uh, that, uh, you know, it's like Mozart. And, and uh, the... Uh, but I do think that there was a, an element of that, that this is going to somehow save the baby, Vatican II. That if Vatican II can live with tradition, tradition can live with Vatican II. Don't forget his whole idea of hermeneutic of continuity, and that somehow Vatican II and tradition can live together, that, that there, is, there is not a break. I think that was in his mind. And that this was a... Uh, a sign of the, the fact that there's no real break between traditional and new. He was smart enough and he knew enough theology to realize that continuity is everything. Mm -hmm. And if you, <clears throat> if you admit discontinuity, you completely destroy the whole legitimacy of the Novus Ordo and mm -hmm. Vatican II. I think he understood that as a serious problem. And this giving the, uh, the, the permission that, uh, for the traditional mass would be sort of the, the guarantee of continuity. You see, we have continuity with the past. You see, these people function in, in the traditional right in perfect continuity with Vatican II. Everything is fine. Everything is on a nice path. And, and, but <laughs> like two spouses that don't get along, they start screaming at each other. Uh, <laughs> 
And Bergoglio was the, in a way, the exact opposite of Ratzinger. He had no care about continuity. He was and is a flaming, flaming modernist and couldn't care less about continuity with the past. The past is dead. It should be condemned. It should be forgotten about. And, and the new should be brought in. And this, this is a relic that is just a nuisance and a dangerous element in the, in the Catholic and the Novus Ordo religion that has to be extinguished. I think that's his idea. I don't think he shares any of, of Ratzinger. He certainly doesn't have any idea of beauty or culture or intelligence. Right. Those things, he's, he's completely stripped of those things. Ratzinger could appreciate Harrods, but Bergoglio is now <laughs> Walmart. <laughs> Even Walmart, I think, is, is a little higher. <laughs> Uh, so uh, the uh, the uh, I, I, that's the way I would analyze it. Is, mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, there's a number of things in Bergol in the Ratzinger's mind that were active. One was the beauty. One was the continuity problem. He understood that continuity problem. He gave that speech in 2005. You know, that hermeneutic of continuity business, and uh, he he was concerned about that because he knows he knows enough church history uh, to know that if if continuity fails, Vatican II goes into the garbage. Mm -hmm. So with the passage of 13 years, I instructed the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith to circulate a question out to the bishops regarding the implementation of the Moti Proprio Simon Pontificum. The bishops' responses reveal a situation that preoccupies and saddens me and persuades me of the need to intervene. Regrettably, the pastoral objective of my predecessors who had intended Quote, to do everything possible to ensure that all those who truly possess the desire for unity would find it possible to remain in this unity or to rediscover it anew, unquote, has often been seriously disregarded. An opportunity offered by John Paul II and with even greater magnanimity, Benedict XVI, intended to recover the unity of an ecclesial body with diverse liturgical sensibilities, isn't that a nice word, mm -hmm. was exploited to widen the gaps, reinforce the divergences, and encourage disagreements that injure the church, block her path, and expose her to the peril of division. So he's astonished to discover that there's been some disagreement between these two, these two rights. Oh, shocking. <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, well, it, uh, it, He's pointing out in a subtle way that John Paul II and Benedict XVI were naive in thinking that these two things could, could somehow stay together. Mm -hmm. uh, I found this interesting because the Catholic Church in her history has always had a great diversity of rites. Mm -hmm. In the Western Rite, there was the Mozarabic, the Sarum, the Rite of Lyon, the, the Rite of Milan, uh, the, I mean, the Roman rite was really pretty much confined to Rome. Uh, and uh, the uh, various other rites, I mean, every diocese had its little, you know, little rites. And, and um, the, the Dominicans had their own rite, the Norbertines had their own rite. And then you had all of the Eastern rites, which were very different in, you know, character from the Roman rite. And everybody got along. <laughs> there was no fighting. There was no, you know, division. <laughs> Nothing. There was, I mean, there's no history of that in the church. 
there's there's the uh, in the Eastern rites you have all of the different languages, the Coptic, you know, the Egyptians and the the Syro uh, Malabars. I think that's in India. I don't know what they they say there. You know, the uh, there's the uh, Chaldeans who are using Aramaic. There's the Maronites. I don't know what the Maronites use. Something in Lebanon. I don't know what they use. Arabic maybe. Uh, there's the Greeks that use the Greek, and and you know there's the Ruthenians that use the old Slavonic. These are all Catholic rites in the mm-hmm. East. <laughs> Nobody thought about these things, and the reason is they all spoke the same theology and the same doctrine of the Mass in all different ways, in different gestures, different prayers, different languages, different vestments, uh, everything different except that same Catholic doctrine. Whereas these two rites are speaking two different doctrines, and that's the problem. So this idea that uh, somehow the Catholic Church cannot tolerate different rights within its within its bosom uh, is is a joke I mean it's it's historically stupid to say that because there is if these two rights were talking the same doctrinal language they could coexist together without any problem at all it's absurd because anybody who's traveled will know the uh, the impossibility of of following what's going on in the Novus Ordo and Years and years ago, when I was 18, That's I went... a long time ago. Oh, a long time <laughs> Dinosaurs ago. roamed the earth. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, no, when I was 18, I went, uh, on, uh, I went to see some friends in France, and we were in a very small, uh, obviously French, um, village in the Alps, because we had gone skiing. And my French isn't bad. I can understand quite a lot of what's being said. I can't speak it very well, but I can understand a fair bit of what's said. But I could not. They, they said, I was in the SSPX at the time, they said, would you like to go to the, uh, they want, typical French SSPX, they have to go to Mass on Sunday, and it doesn't matter where it is. So they, they, yes. they, they, they go to yes. the local neighbors or place. And so I thought, you know, yeah, I'll go along just to see what's, going, what, mm-hmm. what's actually happening. The priest must have been about 80. He couldn't sing. And, of course, it's all been Protestantized, so most of, the, most of their service now is singing, and he's leading it, so it sounds mm. terrible. Mm-hmm. And if you don't speak French, you can't understand what they're saying, mm-hmm. and you can't understand what's being said in the sermon, mm-hmm. which is fine. You wouldn't understand that you know, if, if it was Catholic. But at least if, if it's all in Latin, you can travel to any country in the world, mm-hmm. any language, and you can understand what's going on at mm-hmm. the altar. So the idea of, uh, you know, this unity that everybody does the same thing and it's all in the vernacular, it's absurd on the face of it. No, it, it's, there are, there are, and there's really no unity of right within the Novus Ordo. It, it's do whatever you want and uh, you, you are you're capable of making up things. You are even encouraged to adjust it. That's uh, Father Chicada pointed that out, that it's in the instructions concerning the new mass. Uh, you know, ad living. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, this is, but nonetheless, it all speaks the same modernist doctrine. <laughs> so no matter what you do, it's talking modernism, mm-hmm. whereas the traditional right is talking Catholicism. That's the difference, and that's why these two things uh, exploited the gaps, as he says, and reinforced the divergences and encouraged disagreements that injure the church. 
block her path, that is to modernism, and expose her to the peril of division, mm -hmm. right? That was never said about any Catholic right in the past, even Catholic rights that were suppressed, such as Sarah Mark. No one ever said that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this is, that's, I think that's proof positive that the new mass is something alien to the Catholic Church, because if it were not alien, those two rights could coexist very nicely together. Which leads us on very nicely to the next paragraph, because he says, at the same time, I am saddened by abuses in the celebration of the liturgy on all sides. In common with Benedict XVI, I deplore the fact that in many places, the prescriptions of the new missal are not observed in celebration, but indeed come to be interpreted as an authorization for or even a requirement of creativity, which leads to almost unbearable distortions. But I am nonetheless saddened that the instrumental use of Missale Romanum of 1962 is often characterized by a rejection, not only of the liturgical reform, but of the Vatican Council to itself, claiming with unfounded and unsustainable assertions that it betrayed the tradition of the true church. The path of the church must be seen within the dynamic of tradition which, quote, which originates from the apostles and progresses in the church with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, unquote. A recent stage of this dynamic was constituted by Vatican Council II, where the Catholic Episcopate came together to listen and to discern the path for the church indicated by the Holy Spirit. To doubt the council is to doubt the intentions of these very fathers who exercised their collegial power in a solemn manner, cum petro et sub petro, in an ecumenical council, and in the final analysis, to doubt the Holy Spirit himself who guides the church. So, Novus Order Conservatives, there you go, that's from the, your Pope himself saying that these changes are all guided by the Holy Spirit. And in a solemn manner. <laughs> that word solemn rings bells and fire alarms. They exercise their collegial power in a solemn manner. That means solemn magisterium. Mm -hmm. That sinks the ship of the Novus Ordo Conservatives. That is a torpedo in its side. No one has said that up to now, to use that term. That means that was, that was a, that they were speaking with supreme authority. Mm -hmm binding authority, that word. I mean, to, to an ecclesiastic, that comes right off the page, <laughs> blinking like a neon, <laughs> solemn. You wouldn't use that word, you know, it, it, you'd avoid that. You would say authoritative or something like solemn. Mm -hmm. So that, that is, I mean, their, their ships are sunk with that statement. And what he's saying is true, to doubt the council, if the council is a true general council of the church, and the bishops are acting and speaking in a solemn manner together with the Pope, yes, that would be to deny the assistance of the Holy Ghost to the Catholic Church, which would be a heresy. He's absolutely right about that. Unfortunately, the, the other side of the coin is true, that if it is teaching things contrary to faith, the whole thing is wrecked. 
that means you must conclude that the Holy Ghost was not there and therefore it proceeds from man and not from God and that therefore that the promulgation of it was by a false pope because true popes do not do those things and they cannot because of the assistance of the Holy Ghost. It's like Father Chikata used to quote the expression, real men don't eat quiche. <laughs> and, and the same is true, real popes don't promulgate heresies. <laughs> it's a perfect analogy. Yeah. You see? Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's another side of the coin to that statement. Yeah. And, and he's, really put, he's, he's really increasing the, I would just say, the, the odds, you might say, by using that word solemn. Mm-hmm. Because that gives to the state of Acantists a tremendous ammunition. So you meant that and you thought... That's Salom Magisterium. Thank you, Pagelia. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our hearts, we thank you. You have given us the the ultimate, you know, uh, 500 megaton atomic bomb (laughs) with regard to any arguments from Novus Order conservatives and the like. So, moving on. The objective of the modification of the permission granted by my predecessors is highlighted by the Second Vatican Council itself. From the voters submitted by the bishops, there emerged a great insistence on the full, conscious, and active participation of the whole people of God in the liturgy, along lines already indicated by Pius XII, how dare he, in the encyclical Mediata Dei, on the renewal of the liturgy. The Constitution... Sacrosanctum Concilium confirmed this appeal by seeking the renewal and advancement of the liturgy, and by indicating the principles that should guide the reform. In particular, it established that these principles concerned the Roman rite and other legitimate rites where applicable, and asked that the rites be revised carefully in the light of sound tradition, and that they be given new vigour to meet present-day circumstances and needs. On the basis of these principles, a reform of the liturgy was undertaken with its highest expression in the Roman Missal, published in Editio Typica by Paul VI and revised by John Paul II. It must therefore be maintained that the Roman Rite, adapted many times over the course of the centuries according to the needs of the day, not only be preserved, but renewed, quote, in faithful observance of the tradition, unquote. Whoever wishes to celebrate with devotion according to earlier forms of the liturgy can find in the Reformed Roman Missal according to Vatican Council II, all the elements of the Roman Rite, in particular the Roman Canon, which constitutes one of its more distinctive elements. Well, where do we begin? The, uh, first of all, that this false statement that the Roman Rite was adapted many times over the course of the centuries according to the needs of the day. That's purely false. There were no needs of the day the, that uh, required it the only thing I can think of that might might refer to that is the addition of the last gospel by St. Pius V because of the Protestants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no idea of conforming it to the needs of the day, like some sort of, well, times of change. You know, we're using ox carts now instead of, you know, something else or we're, we're you know, uh, we've invented something or uh, there was the Roman Rite went straight through. Uh, it, it augmented, it's, it was augmented by borrowing from the Gallican Rite because of, not because of any needs of the day, it just, it was beautiful stuff. 
<laughs> the offertory prayers in particular. Was there ever a need to carry the the Pope to Mass on the Sedia Gestatoria? Was that ever a right. requirement? We must right. do this because of the needs of the day. Right. But, you know, it, it, it's, there was never, I mean, that, that's an absurd statement to say that the rights of the, were, were, were reformed according to the needs of the day. The Council of Trent suppressed certain accretions in the Mass, certain, like the poems that got in and what they call the troping of the Kyrie, Kyrie eleison, uh, uh, you are the, the supreme god, or so, you know, they, were, they put in these little aspirations and mm -hmm. these little prayers. In the Kyrie, it, it suppressed the troping, and there's no one like troping of the Kyrie. Uh, and, uh, um, um, and the fathers of the council wanted to do away with polyphony, but did not after they heard the Palestrina Mass of, uh, yes. And, uh, that was not exactly conforming to the needs of the day. They were going to do away with the polyphony, which yeah. was a modern thing. Mm -hmm. But they, they were overwhelmed by the beauty of the <laughs> mass of Pope Marcellus. Uh, and uh, the, um, but I mean, that's just an absurd non-historical statement to say that. Uh, not, not only be preserved, but renewed in faithful observance of tradition. Now, now that's just another laugh out loud. To say that there that that there's a faithful uh, observance of tradition in the new mass, if you read Father Chicada's book, which is so well researched, that's just a lot of garbage, mm -hmm. frankly. That statement. Uh, and whoever wishes to celebrate with devotion according to earlier forms of liturgy can find in the Reformed Roman Missal, according to Vatican Council II, all the elements of the Roman Rite. Oh, please, come on. The, the offertory that comes from a Jewish service? Get off of it. <laughs> there, there, there's no history of that offertory. The, the, the traditional. The, the, and you know, the Roman canon, which is distorted, uh, and uh, uh, the various other aspects of the Mass that are just departures from tradition. There is no tradition for example, for a dialogue mass where people are screaming out responses to the priest, that that doesn't exist in tradition. It doesn't exist, right? The the uh, or no, there's no tradition for facing the people. Well, excuse me, there is. It started with Martin Luther, that, <laughs> and even Jungmann, who was the famous uh, modernist liturgist, on on which the Roman Rite was based in all of his comments, said that the first mention of mass facing the people was Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. That there's no history of, of facing the people. So that is something borrowed from Protestantism. I mean, this is just nonsense, all of this. And why, if that's true, why do people want the traditional mass? Why, if they can find it in the new right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, this, these people are living in a dream world, or, or I don't know what, you know, a world of make-believe. To, to see if you put two movies, the, the new mass and the traditional mass together side by side, you'd say, this is two different religions. Well, you know, this is two different churches. And, you know, this idea, oh, we're so sinned by the aberrations in the, the Roman rite, you know, the Reformed rite. That, again, is a lot of garbage. Why don't you suppress those things and punish 
with excommunication those who do those aberrations. Mm -hmm. But those things are done commonly. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the clown masses and all of the dancing and all of the other horrid things that go on in those liturgical celebrations that, that you know, sometimes are unmentionable. The, I mean, nothing is done about that. That's fine. But when it comes to this traditional mass, it just shows a hatred, a deep, deep hatred on the part of Bergoglio and those bishops for the traditional faith and its liturgical expression, which is the traditional Latin mass. They hate it. They want it suppressed. They want to kill it. It's as simple as that. Next, a final reason for my decision is this. Ever more plain in the words and attitudes of many is the close connection between the choice of celebrations according to the liturgical books prior to Vatican II and the rejection of the church and her institutions in the name of what is called the true church. One is dealing here with compartment that contradicts communion and nurtures the divisive tendency, quote, I belong to Paul, I belong instead to Apollo, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Christ, unquote against which the Apostle Paul so vigorously reacted. In defense of the unity of the body of Christ, I am constrained to revoke the faculty granted by my predecessors. The distorted use that has been made of this faculty is contrary to the intentions that led to granting the freedom to celebrate the Mass with the Missale Romano of 1962. Because, quote, liturgical celebrations are not private actions, but celebrations of the Church, which is the sacrament of unity, unquote, they must be carried out in communion with the Church. Vatican II, while it reaffirmed the external bonds of incorporation in the Church, the profession of faith, the sacraments of communion, affirmed with St. Augustine that to remain in the Church, not only with the body but also with the heart, is a condition for salvation. Did it? Did it affirm that when it said that other religions are means of salvation? Say this again. He says, Vatican II, while it reaffirmed the external bonds of incorporation in the church, the profession of faith, the sacraments of communion, affirmed with St. Augustine that to remain in the church, not only with the body, but also with the heart, is a condition for salvation. The Vatican II also declares that other religions are means yes. of salvation. Yes, well, that's, again, nonsense and just inconsistent with what Vatican II teaches. Uh, that the, those are are means of salvation. How could you uh, how, how could you say that's a condition for salvation when other things, other churches are also means of salvation? You can take another airline to to Europe. Why do you have to take you know, one in particular? It's absurd. But anybody reading that who didn't know what was in the documents of the council would just say, "Oh, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll take that." Again, you know this this is. This is all true. If this were written in 1907, it would be perfectly in accordance with, <laughs> with Catholic doctrine, and you would mm -hmm. say, "Oh, this is true," <laughs> you know. But again, it ignores this battle, this this incompatibility of two religions existing in the same church house or ecclesiastical house. That's that's the f fundamental problem. And again, I'm hoping that the uh, that the Novus Ordo conservatives and all of those people who were, have been trying to eke out a, some sort of situation in the, in the Novus Ordo church realize that it is futile and 
a waste of time and that they have to break with the modernists. And that in breaking with the modernists, they cannot possibly in any way separate themselves from the Catholic Church. It is the modernists who are outside the church. It is the modernists who have broken from continuity. They are the ones that need to be expelled. They can't be expelled if we give them the legitimacy which they desire from those who do practice the traditional faith. Mm -hmm. That we give them the license to exist. They need to be denounced. They need to be to have their masks stripped off their faces and shown to be the heretics that they are. I recently sent you a link, my lord, to uh, something about a, uh, a rally that certain Novus Order conservative lay people are organising to to go to the bishops and say, "Enough is enough. We've had enough of this." You know, we, first of all. Do they not realize that it's the bishops that have put them in this position in the first place? And secondly, do they not realize that the church is a monarchy and that they are there to obey what the, mm -hmm. the Pope tells them to do? They're, they're playing into, without realizing it, they're playing into modernism by saying that the, the lay people can have some kind of dialogue mm -hmm. with the princes of the church mm -hmm. and come to some kind of agreement. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know. It's... it's Utterly, totally inconsistent. It's facts of Jansenism and Gallicanism uh, that that uh, it is condemned by popes in the past. That uh, you you know you can I, you can as if you could say I'm the pope and I don't have to obey you. Although that's condemned, mm -hmm. you know. And and but they're trying to find a a way of balancing loyalty to the pope with loyalty to tradition. They those two things cannot happen together. And this, this document is... Hopefully these two it. documents... What's that? Hopefully these two documents erase that right. error. Let's hope they realize that. I don't know. It, they, you know they, they are pretty convinced of their positions, but uh, I, I think that this is a, a shock to them and uh, is a slap in the face and, and uh, like ice water splashed in their face. And... So let's move through the rest of this document as quickly as we can. So... Dear brothers in the Episcopate, Sacrosanctum Concilium explained that the church, the sacrament of unity, is such because it is the holy people gathered and governed under the authority of the bishops. Lumen Gentium, while recalling that the Bishop of Rome is the permanent and visible principle and foundation of the unity, both of the bishops and of the multitude of the faithful, states that you, the bishops, are the visible principle and foundation of the unity of your local churches, in which and through which exists the one and only Catholic Church. Well, this is the Vatican II error that the Catholic Church is the collection of the particular churches, which is false, right? That it's sort of a, a big communion of particular churches and that the Pope sits on top of it, something like the British Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, uh, that, uh, that's false. I mean, that's a false ecclesiology, what he just said there. The, the Roman pontiff is the one that is the center of unity and the principle of unity. The bishops, yes, in their dioceses are, but the, the Catholic Church is not composed of a bunch of dioceses. It, it, is, it is the Pope who establishes those dioceses and, and has control over those faithful in those dioceses and confides to bishops his control over those, those people. See, so it is everything... Uh, it's like a, a, a wheel that has spokes. Everything comes out of Rome. In other words, the whole church is ruled 
by the Roman pontiff, and the bishops are there at the behest of the pope to rule the people in his name. Mm -hmm. See, so that's false ecclesiology. So that's, you know, that's, and, and, you know, to say that the Catholic Church is the sacrament of unity because the holy people gathered, it is, it is the holy people gathered and governed under the authority of the bishops, under the authority of the Pope, not under the authority of the bishops. That's collegiality. So that, that's Vatican II garbage. So responding to your requests, I take the firm decision to abrogate all the norms, instructions, permissions, and customs that precede the present motu proprio and declare that the liturgical books promulgated by the yes. saintly Paul II and J.P. II, apparently, in conformity with the decrees of Vatican II, constitute the unique expression of the lex or randi of the Roman rite. I take comfort in this decision from the fact that after the Council of Trent, St. Pius V also abrogated all the rights that could not claim a proof in antiquity, because it's totally the same, establishing for the whole Latin Church a single Missale Romanum. For four centuries, this Missale Romanum, promulgated by St. Pius V, was thus the principal expression of the Lex Orandi of the Roman rites, and functioned to maintain the unity of the Church. Without denying the dignity and grandeur of this rite, the bishops gathered in ecumenical council asked that it be reformed. Their intention was that, quote, the faithful would not assist as strangers and silent spectators in the mystery of faith, but with a full understanding of the rites and prayers, would participate in the sacred action consciously, piously, and actively, unquote. Paul VI, recalling that the work of adaptation of the Roman Missal had already been initiated by Pius XII, Mm-hmm. declared that the revision of the Roman Missal carried out in the light of ancient liturgical sources had the goal of permitting the church to raise up in the variety of languages, quote, a single and identical prayer, unquote, that expressed her unity. This, un- this unity I intend to reestablish throughout the church of the Roman Rite. Well, first of all, uh, St. Pius V, uh, as we said, suppressed all the rites less than 200 years old for fear of heresy in them, not for any other reason, all right? Not because uh, he wanted to necessarily make everybody observe the Roman rite. He, uh, he said, anyone may elect my missile if he wills, but I am not suppressing rites that have existed longer than 200 years. So the, the Ambrosian Rite, as a matter of fact, St. Charles Borromeo uh, tried to impose the Roman Missal in Milan, and there was a riot in the cathedral <laughs> that the Ambrosian Rite would no longer be used, and he had to concede the continuation of the Ambrosian Rite. So it was not any kind of violence by which St. Pius V imposed this. He said anyone may elect it if he wants, but and not suppressing the, the local rights that, that might be more than 200 years old. So the Dominicans kept their own right, and I think the Norbertines did too, and others that, Lyon kept its own right, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I'm sure there's others that, that did as well. The, uh, so, I mean, it's not comparable. Uh, it's just, in fact, it was universally accepted, uh, and, uh, and became, you know, a very, very uniform and and 
So that's number one. Number two, this idea of participation. The primary participation of the people in the mass is an interior participation whereby they unite themselves to the action of the priest and offer their own sacrifices in union with the priest who offers them in union with the sacrifice of the mass and gives them value. That is the sacrifice that the people offer. So they offer their own sacrifice, that is their own personal sacrifices, and they offer the sacrifice of the mass through the action of the priest, right? That, that is participation. It's primarily interior. The, uh, the idea of, as I said, screaming out the responses and all of the other things that they do uh, are accidental. I mean, this is at best accidental. Also, you have to understand that the proper celebration of the Roman Rite is the solemn mass. And in the solemn mass, there is plenty of, how would you say, uh, things going on that you don't see in the low mass. The low mass is meant to, was invented actually in the Middle Ages for monasteries where there were many priests saying mass in these private chapels. And, and so it was just, it was read, you just read the mass. But the proper way of saying mass is the solemn mass. And the, uh, uh, as I, if I'm not mistaken, in the early church, it was only the bishop of the diocese that celebrated mass on Sunday, and it was a solemn mass. Mm -hmm. See, so that was the mass of the church. It was not something quiet. Uh, the uh, there was a choir, and there was you know a, a, a participation in that sense. The um, but it was not this quiet thing where people were just you know, saying the rosary or something. There's nothing wrong with saying a rosary at mass, but it's just to say that the low mass is not the standard form of the Roman rite. And that's implied here, that, that this quiet mass and where people are not in, interacting with it is, is, the, uh, uh, is the, the standard form of the Roman Rite. It's just not true, and they should have admitted that. Uh, the, um, I also saw in church history that in the early church, they forbade the general public from singing because it sounded so bad and they, they kept it with the choir. Mm -hmm. That goes back to the early church, I think it was the fourth century, mm -hmm. that it just was, sounded so horrible that, the, that they did not want everybody singing. And that's true. They, they, with some of the early liturgical reforms that came in, and even in the 30s, there was this idea that everybody should say, Dominus, you know, et cum spiritu tuo, and uh, should sing the Gloria and the Kyrie. It sounds like a bunch of cows that, that are in pain. <laughs> and and it just lucky. sounds awful and reduces the, I mean, it destroys the, the dignity of the liturgy. It's uh -huh. so much nicer that you have a choir singing as, you know, we have nuns here that sing uh -huh. beautifully. And now, thanks to our Austrian seminarian, our seminarians are much improved. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that. But, uh, I have noticed it. Yes, that's due to Nico, our Austrian I don't I guess know that. I mean, he's a musician. So, oh, I see. So, and, uh, but he gets them to really sing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, so, uh, so this is you know, very distorted. You know, historically, it's very distorted, and uh, the uh, and also there was a great deal of education of the faithful in the 19th century and the 20th century by the true liturgical movement. The use of missals 
the education of the people from the pulpit about the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and in catechisms. Whereas today, I had a Novus Ordo priest told me, who told me not too long ago that he didn't know that the, and he's in his 50s, that he did not know that the Mass was a sacrifice until about a year or so ago. Novus Ordo priest, he didn't know it. So this, this Roman rite does not teach anything about the Mass. It teaches error concerning the Mass. Mm-hmm. So you know they are again, they're, they're just talking through their hats, mm-hmm. you know, about all of this. Um, and the the revision of the Roman Missal carried out in the light of ancient liturgical sources, such as the Jewish seder service in the offertory. That's ancient, very ancient. Yeah. True. Oh, yeah, that's true. That was to be Jewish, uh, and Protestants, you know, and and all sorts of uh, and taking out purposely from the orations anything that has to do with Catholic dogma. It's all in Father Chikata's book. Mm-hmm. And this is just pure nonsense and garbage, trash, rubbish, all right? That, that oh, come on. This is laugh out loud, that they observe tradition. And he talks about the fact that the Roman Missal had already, the adaptation had already been initiated by Pius XII. Well, who under Pius XII initiated those changes? And for what reasons, my lord? Yes. Who, who was it who started those changes? Bonini. Why did, and what, what, he was a member of a club, wasn't he? Well, he was he was he was a member of the Freemasons. Yes, yeah. he was a Freemason. He has been called a club. <laughs> a These are club. enemies of the church. Yes, and uh, and he was fulfilling the the dream of the modernists to um, insert modernism by means of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. They had failed in a direct assault on the church by means of dogma. Pius X repressed them. And so they turned to the liturgy in the 1920s and the 1930s and so forth, and they seized the liturgical movement and turned it into a vehicle of modernism. And he was in the forefront of that. Mm-hmm. And so Pius XII, for I guess a certain naivete, let him, in 1948, he put him in charge of, of the uh, commission to reform the liturgy. And, and that was a mistake, that's the only thing mm-hmm. you could say. So Bergoglio is calling on him now, and, and so your, your average reader might read that, oh, it started under Pius XII, but there's a bit more to it than that. If, if you understand who Bonini was and why he did what he did, uh, you know, you, you would... There is nothing in the Pius XII changes that would be contrary to faith or offensive to faith. And that's the point of the, of the Roman Missal of 1970, mm-hmm. is that it cannot coexist. Mm-hmm. So moving on, Vatican II, when it described the Catholicity of the people of God, recalled that, quote, within the ecclesial communion, unquote, there exist the particular churches which enjoy their proper traditions. Without prejudice to the primacy of the chair of Peter, who presides over the universal communion of charity, guarantees the legitimate diversity and together ensures that the particular not only does not injure the universal, but above all serves it. While in the exercise of my ministry in service of unity, I take the decision to suspend the faculty granted by my predecessors. I ask you to share with me this burden as a form of participation in the solicitude for the whole church proper to the bishops. So they're being solicitors for the good of the church. In the motu proprio, I have desired to affirm that it is up to the bishop as moderator, promoter, and guardian of the liturgical life of the church, of which he is the principle of unity, to regulate the liturgical celebrations. 
It is up to you to authorize in your churches as local ordinaries the use of the Missale Romanum of 1962, applying the norms of the present motu proprio. It is up to you to proceed in such a way as to return to a unitary form of celebration and to determine case by case the reality of the groups which celebrate with this Missale Romanum. The reality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is the, first of all, the, the, the source of unity is the Pope, not the bishops. And it, it doesn't uh, uh, pertain to bishops to, to assign or to invent rights of the church. It pertains to the Roman pontiff. And so that's, again, right off the bat, false. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, uh, that he is uh, you know, uh, concerned about the solicitude for the whole church is a lot of garbage and nonsense, you know, just uh, laugh out loud. And the... the <laughs> Uh, so it is up to you to proceed in such a way as to return to a unitary form of celebration. Well, that says the new mass alone would, uh, and to determine, I mean, that's unitary form of celebration and to determine case by case, the reality of the groups. What does that mean? Which celebrate with this Masali Romano. I don't know. It's very confusing. I don't know what they. But mean. when I read unitary form of celebration, all I read there was unitary. One, yes, one, one form of I mean, celebration. There's only room for one. Yeah. So this essentially, in so many words, is calling for the extinction of the traditional. That's only what it looks like. So indications about how to proceed in your diocese are chiefly dictated by two principles. On the one hand, to provide for the good of those who are rooted in the previous form of celebration and need to return in due time to the Roman rite promulgated by Paul VI and John Paul II. And on the other hand, to discontinue the erection of new personal parishes tied more to the desire and wishes of individual priests than to the real need of the holy people of God. At the same time, I ask you to be vigilant in ensuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books. Yeah, right. Promulgated <laughs> after Vatican II without the eccentricities that can easily degenerate into abuses. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like something the Church of England wrote this. Yes. Seminarians and new priests should be formed in the faithful observance of the prescriptions of the Missal and liturgical books in which is reflected the liturgical reform willed by Vatican II. Mm-hmm. What can you say about that? What can you say? You know, the again, it's it's calling for the extinction of the traditional mass. The the seminarians and new priests have to learn the new mass, uh, and the uh, the idea that uh, you know hereafter sixty years of liturgical abomination, such as the Pachamama mm-hmm. in Saint Peter's Basilica, that that he himself led. Uh, and the idolatry that, that we are supposed to now be making sure that everything is done in a perfectly uh, a, you know, decorous manner with regard to the Roman Missal. I mean, mm-hmm. again, please don't, don't insult our intelligences. <laughs> I mean, this, these things have been going on for years and nobody has said anything. Not Ratzinger, not John Paul II. John Paul II did some of them. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, I mean, 
if anything has driven people to the traditional mass, it's those very things, those very abominations that people could not bear, which they, by their tacit, by, by saying nothing, have approved. Why are the, is he so concerned about the traditional mass, but not with the utter, utter abominations in the holy place uh, that, that are done all over the world? Mm -hmm. The LBGTQ masses and the this and that and the, you know, the the masses in San Francisco where they had you know these homosexuals dressed up as nuns and all of this. Yes, I don't know that. Yes, you know, this is your. I'm not surprised. Yes, I mean, just that. just things that that uh, are absolutely you know, just awful. Is not an adjective for it. No, you know it, it's something that that cries to heaven for vengeance, and you know we're really concerned about this. <laughs> Just please do not. Yeah. Don't insult our intelligence. Don't insult our intelligences. This is a lot of nonsense, and you're just saying it in order to justify yourself with regard to the extinction of the traditional mass. That's mm -hmm. the only reason you're saying that. See, we're we're really concerned. Yeah. So worried about. So go through this final paragraph and then I have a few questions. Upon you, I invoke the spirit of the risen Lord, that he may make you strong and firm in your service to the people of God entrusted to you by the Lord, so that your care and vigilance express communion, even in the unity of one single, one single right, in which is preserved the great richness of the Roman liturgical tradition. And Judaism. <laughs> I pray for, and Lutheranism. I pray yes. for you and you pray for me. Yes, isn't that nice? The, so really, again, the unity of one single right. He is saying, get rid of the, the traditional mass. It's yeah. implicitly saying, get rid of it. Yeah. And uh, in which is preserved the great rich, rich, you know, come on, please. You can permit the traditional mass in your parishes, but read between the lines, one single right. Yes, yes. Yes, uh, no, he, he, he hates it and he wants to see it disappear. And this, this will make it effectively disappear mm -hmm. because I think most of the bishops will just get rid of it and many of them already have. Um, so this document, or these two documents issued together, have for various groups of people who are all, uh, who will claim to be Catholic and obviously, you know, we, we consider ourselves the only correct ones among those groups. For some of the groups, there is a change, and for others, there is no change. So let, let's start with the, I don't like to use the word liberal Catholics, but let's start with the liberals, the Novosor, liberal Novosordites, the people who think they are Catholics. Any change for them? No. 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 What about the those within the Novosordo who are conservatives? So the Novosordo conservatives, the ones who want to try and find a little niche of tradition in the, uh, in the Novosordo, any change for them? Well, it depends on what you mean by a niche in the Novus Ordo. Do they want a, a traditionalist niche, or do they want uh, a conservatively celebrated Novus Ordo? That, you know, so you'd have to. Some of them would be content with a conservatively celebrated Novus Ordo. Others, no. Others, the ones going to the traditional mass, if I understand correctly, are very attached to it and will not go to the new mass. Mm -hmm. They will drive for hours for the traditional mass and go to a lot of trouble to have it. They will not go to the, to the new mass. And this I know from the, the priest who has recently come to us from the Novus Ordo, mm -hmm. who uh, said the, uh, 
traditional mass almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. And he said it in a hospital chapel uh, and uh, publicly. And um, so he says that, you know, he's very familiar with, with the whole scene. And he says, those people will not go to the new mass. They just won't do it. So I think that this is going to drive them into fraternity of St. Peter, which still apparently has the right to exist in those groups that are approved, but I think they'll be restrained a great deal, or they will drive them into SSPX, Mm. or they will drive them into state of Vacantism. So So for for the kind of people who who would read uh, maybe LifeSite News or The Remnant or Catholic Family News or something like that, for those people, there there is potentially a big, big change on the way. The Nova Scotia Conservatives. Yes, yes. They, they, they have to make some choices now. They're going to see the disappearance of their masses or the reduction of them to the point where it's practically impossible. And what about those who, would, who, we would, who I would describe as recognize and ignore? Do <laughs> uh, you mean, I mean SSPX, the SSPX types? The SSPX types. I think they're gloating over this because I think they're going to see a lot of those people in the Motu or Sumorum Pacificum go over to them. Mm-hmm. I think they're gloating. I also think that this is their opportunity to consecrate bishops mm-hmm. because there is a lot of animus against Bergoglio right now for doing this. And they need to consecrate bishops. They should see this. I mean, if I were in their shoes, and I'm not, thank goodness. But if I were in their shoes, I would see this as a closing the door to any kind of reconciliation with the Novus Ordo that they've been pursuing for decades. That's shut now. Uh, And that because of this general horrid feeling toward Bergoglio for having done this among people who would be sympathetic to them, it's time for them to, I would say, consecrate their bishops, accept excommunication, which will certainly come, and exploit this very thing and say, look, he is closing the door to anything, any kind of reconciliation between tradition and, and Novus Ordo. This is our new path. This is what has to be done, et cetera, et cetera. I think what Archbishop Lefebvre would have done mm-hmm. long a long time ago, I think he would have condemned all of this attempt to cozy up to the Novus Ordo. Uh, And I think that this is their golden opportunity to really return to the attitudes of Archbishop Lefebvre instead of the the deviation that they have embraced. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that's again, if I were in their shoes, there is, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre had, you know, sort of a double double way of reacting to modernism, but I think his true spirit or, you know, his his more authentic attitude was anti-modernist and anti-reconciliation with them. I think he saw reconciliation with the modernists as merely a a necessary evil in order to carry out a certain apostle among the people. But in his heart, he, he detested them. (laughs) <laughs> and I just knew him for many years and I've heard him, heard him speak both in public and in private and he had no use for them at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I think long ago, if he had been alive, he would have said, forget about it. We're, we're shutting the doors to these people until they become Catholic again. You know? 
I don't think and so I, I think that this is their opportunity. I don't think they'll take it. I no, don't I don't think they'll take it either. I think that they will say, oh, well, he's going to die soon and we'll try with the next pope. I think that's what they'll say. But they would lose a lot of people in that, though. And they have uh, brought in a lot of people on the hope of a reconciliation with the Vatican and the modernist Vatican. They would lose a lot of people with a consecration and uh, an excommunication. They would lose a lot. But they need bishops. Yes. And they're not going to get about, them. It's all about a bishop. The, the state of Acantus have more bishops than they do. <laughs> <laughs> so that leads us uh, finally onto those who don't recognize Bergoglio's authority at all. Uh, the state of Acantists, apart from the inboxes getting a little fuller and the phone perhaps ringing a little more, any change for the state of Acantists with this document? Just rejoicing and and uh, <laughs> clapping, sing, applauding. That, the singing of the Te Deum. Yes, the singing of the Te Deum, <laughs> a, to a champagne toast. Uh, the, uh, that this, this makes clear everything that we have been saying, mm -hmm. that this makes clear the division, the the intense hatred and, and uh, how would you say, uh, opposition between Novus Ordo and tra traditional. Mm -hmm. They can't get along. They are opposed. And this, they are finally figuring this out, the Novus Ordo. They're, they're declaring war on tradition in this document. Mm -hmm. And the, the, it just confirms everything we have said. Mm -hmm. That, that text about Vatican II confirms everything we have said about Vatican II. You can't reject Vatican II without rejecting the Holy Ghost and the assistance of the Holy Ghost to the church. It, it destroys, recognize, and resist. That one sentence destroys it. It all follows logically. Whether they will figure that out, I doubt it because I think they operate on other principles besides Catholic theological principles. Well, we hope and pray they figure it out. Yeah. So uh, it's summer, uh, and uh, just like the city that never sleeps, this is the seminary that never sleeps. So, yes. so what's happening in the seminary at the moment, my lord? Well, we are, uh, for various reasons, uh, we are trying to move seminarians ahead. What what? sort of the, the, uh, the occasion of it was the fact that we got some seminarian uh, who were, well, we got two Novus Ordo priests and one seminarian who, uh, the Novus Ordo priests needed training and we would like to get them to the altar as soon as we can. Uh, one is validly ordained. He was reordained by Bishop Williamson in Brazil. The other has to be validly ordained. He has not been. So they need intensive courses in theology to move them ahead. I mean, our, our normal courses take seven years. You know, mm -hmm. So that's what motivated it. And we thought, well, and then there's also an acute need for priests or just our ordinary seminarians. So we, we thought, well, we could advance them by doing summer courses. And that's what we're doing. And we, there are, some of them are going to class the whole day here, you know, to, because you're doing courses that ordinarily would be spread out over 30 weeks. Mm -hmm. You're doing them in about eight weeks. And uh, so they have to be intense. And so that's what we're doing. And it's, it's successful, but it's no time off for it's, it's just the rat cage, as Father Chicago used to say, the, the rats <laughs> that run around in a, in a round spinning wheel and just... <laughs> 
know, it's, it's the rat cage every day and, and there's no days off and no vacations. <laughs> That's hard on the seminarians as well, that, that intensity of studying, how are they holding up? It is. They're holding up well, but, you know, it is intense. And But I think they see the need and I think it, it, it provides them with the opportunity to be ordained sooner. But uh, there's, there's a, a need that we can see that is, is coming up very fast. Uh, you know, that, uh, uh, first of all, the move to Pennsylvania will put a, you know, a vacuum here of clergy. Then, you know, we're expanding in various places. England is, is dreadfully in need of a priest. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the most acute need in all of our areas. And, uh, you know, the, the, and, but right now we can't even go in ourselves uh, on an airplane because England is, is just completely shut down and you don't know from day to day what they're going to do or, uh, you know, it's just blocked. England, and uh, so that's what we need to place priests in England, uh, and um, we need to. Uh, there's Australia. We need to place more priests in Australia. Uh, we brought in uh, Father Eldrocker because he has been stranded there because of this COVID nonsense for months. Whereas the original plan was to either have him come in, or we send a priest to Australia to to be with him for a while and to hear his confession, et cetera. Uh, that all fell apart with COVID. So we, we were going from month to month. Well, maybe next month we can come in, maybe next month. Well, you know, I know uh, Australia was particularly uh, rigid, let's say, with regard to its shutdowns and lockdowns. And so I finally said, you've got to come. I don't care what happens. We are still committed to Australia but you need to be here for a while. Mm -hmm. And because I, I just will not risk the loss of a priest to, to uh, some priests tend to unravel if they are alone for a long time. And that, I would never have consented that he go to Australia in view of COVID. If I had known COVID would come about, I would never have done it. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of Father Duterte in Canada. I would never have let him go to Canada, uh, French Canada, uh, if I had foreseen COVID, because Canada is also extremely rigid uh, with regard to its rules and laws. If you go there, you have to quarantine for 14 days. You can't even come out of your hotel and you know, it's just things that are crazy. And uh, so he was stuck there. And uh, so I said, you've got to come back. I don't care what happens, but you've got to come back. Now, he can return to Canada. He has to, I think, quarantine for three or four days or something like that. But it's possible for him to return and it's possible for him to come back. He has a U.S. visa, so he's a little bit more mobile. Uh, and uh, so I said, when I first sent him there, I said, you have to come back for one week per month at the seminary. Mm -hmm. So it, because that would involve some quarantining, now I said, Every two months you have to come back. And also we, we want you to have spiritual direction by Zoom every week. So that just, we're, we'll try that and see if that works. So, but COVID really put a wrench in all of our plans. I mean, uh, you know, mm -hmm. everybody's set back by that. I was supposed to do an ordination in France of Henri Chapeau, uh, Reverend Mr. Henri Chapeau de Chamonix. I bought the tickets. France said to the Americans, the door is open. All you need is the PCR test before you get on the plane in 72 hours and you can come into France. Oh, wonderful. This was the end of June. I thought that's great. And you don't even need a vaccination. 
you just the PCR negative test. So I bought the tickets. And around Bastille Day, the 14th of July, Macron says, well, the Delta variant, you know, is, is, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so now we're, we're putting down all these rules. Uh, you need a, a, a pass sanitaire, which means a health pass to, uh, to go on trains, to go into restaurants and all. Well, you can't travel. I mean, you might get into France, but you can't travel around France with, if you can't get into a restaurant. No. And the other is to have a 48-hour negative test. And I was planning to be there for 14 days. That would have meant seven tests for me to just circulate into restaurants and other places. And I had visions of sitting around clinics in France with all sorts of, who knows, you know, elements of the population, you might say. Uh, for hours and hours waiting for this test. I mean, I had visions of that because everyone would have to get the test. We didn't want the vaccination. Everyone would have to get the test. And I thought, I just cannot do this. I cannot take that chance. The other problem is the uncertainty of it. What else are they going to do if I get to France? Well, could I come back? In other words, will they say you must be vaccinated before coming back? Or, you know, you don't know what they're going to do. They no. change from day to day. The same in England. Yeah. It changes from day to day. Yeah. I saw the horrifying figure in England that 80% of the population want to wear masks. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm ashamed. <laughs> I, Unless that's a, some fudged... I think, uh, it, I think it might be a little less than that, but... Um, but from what my brother tells me of, of what's going on at home, um, yeah, it's in a pretty, the country's in a pretty sorry state. Well, that's the English understatement coming through there. <laughs> yes, yes. I was appalled by that. I'm like, my goodness, you know, the, and, you know, Fauci, we found out that Fauci said that the masks that you buy at the local pharmacy did have no effect. No. He admitted that, that came out in those emails that, that were, mm -hmm. so everybody knows that, all the doctors said it, anybody, because the, the virus is too small to be stopped by the, the mask. And, but nonetheless, everybody thinks you should wear masks, apparently, almost everybody, in England. No, they're, they're a comfort blanket. My, my, uh, my brother, I spoke to him this afternoon, he said that it's mainly the middle classes who, are, who want this kind of, Really? Masks and control. The, most of the normal working class people just want to go back to work and have a normal life again. Yes, yes, yes. And the high class don't worry. They, they, they don't wear masks anyway. Well, they don't have to worry about it because people like Boris Johnson uh, and, uh, well, my mother would describe him as a reptile, I think. <laughs> but I think, that's, I think that's an insult to reptiles. Um, he got, after apparently being vaccinated, has again been told that he has to isolate because one of his cabinet members had tested positive for COVID and he'd been in. So what good the vaccina vaccination, apparent vaccination does you, I have no idea. Because he had to, he had to isolate and, uh, or quarantine. And he said, no, 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 I, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this new scheme that we've come up with where you get tested every day and, and you can go about your business. And there was an uproar in the country. So he said, okay, I will isolate like everybody else has to. So I'm going to go to Chequers, which is the prime minister's 
nice country pile in the Chilterns. So he'll be there in his nice country estate, uh, isolating yes. um, in terrible deprivation while other people who've tested positive, uh, not even tested positive, have been notified through the application that they downloaded for their phone to contact trace them. Uh, the, the person that lives in, in the council flat in Hounslow somewhere in, in London is told, you have to go and stay in your council flat for 10 days. I, why I know I'm a Catholic and I should not in, endorse revolution in any way, but why there are not people in the street with pitchforks and burning torches, I have no idea. There were uprisings in English history for a lot less in the Middle yeah. Ages. Yeah. <laughs> a lot less. Yeah. Uh, it is... Uh, I... I I think it's that socialism that crept into British society in the late 19th century, little by little. Never mind throwing boxes of tea into the harbour. They should get out of Southampton and throw all the containers <laughs> with the stupid masks into the harbour. <laughs> uh, but because you see that in Canada, I mean, that, that socialism and, and in Australia and in New Zealand, there's, there, there's something common. Yes, yeah, there is. Well, I, I said to you earlier, it's like the Commonwealth is uh, competing to see who can be the most insane. <laughs> the yeah. stories that we get from Australia are just absolutely joyful. Australia will do crazy things, then Canada will say, no, we can do better than that. And then New Zealand will say, hold my beer, I'm going to do something really insane now. And then England will feel left out, so it has to compete. Yes. It's. Yes. So COVID has, you know, to get back to the seminary, it has changed a lot of our, and given us big, big problems. But uh, thankfully we're in Florida, which is the best place in the entire planet to be right now for COVID because of, so. of Governor DeSantis. You know, so. I think so. Apart from I spoke to, to somebody I know in Nigeria, it's one of the Catholics in Nigeria, and I said, how are things there? And he said, what, what do you mean? I said, with COVID. Oh, nobody pays any attention to that. <laughs> so, sounds like life is back to normal in Nigeria. I think it's the, uh, I think it's the Western world who are totally insane. Yes, totally insane is right, but it's. Uh, I think it's the effect of long-term uh, conversion to socialism, mm -hmm. you know, and just you know, where the government is everything. Mm -hmm. The ironic idea of liberty turning into socialism. The, the, you know, it's so ironic these countries that adopted the principles of the French Revolution, you know, mm -hmm. liberty and all that, mm -hmm. uh, have turned into totalitarian states, practically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's a good thing that we went to uh, England in January. That was like our last chance to do yeah. it. It's a good thing, that, you know, and it was the last minute I decided to just go and see what happens. And mm -hmm. I was like iffy about his going. I'm glad he did. No, the, pe the people there are very, very appreciative of what Father yeah, Patrice we'll tell did. them that uh, as soon as it opens up, we'll be on a plane. Okay. Myself, I will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my Lord. Well, thank you very much for, for doing this interview. Um, it's very kind of you. We know your time is precious, so thank you very much. No, not at all. Thank you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.